Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Chaz Freeman, Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs from 1993 to 1994, who warns that recent statements by President Biden have upended U.S.-China relations over Taiwan's future status. Poe Murray chair of Newtown Action Alliance, who reflects on the trauma people are feeling after the bloody mass murder of schoolchildren in Texas and the urgent need to continue demanding the strengthening of federal gun laws. And Autumn Crow of the West Virginia Rivers Coalition, who talks about the link between the endangered candy darter fish and the threats posed by construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline in Virginia and West Virginia. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. After two years of wildfires and massive floods, voters in Australia ousted the ruling Conservative coalition in favor of Labour Party leader Anthony Albanese with support from independents and Greens. Albanese won by advocating dramatic action to address the climate crisis, while voters rejected Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who has close ties to powerful coal and natural gas interests. While Labour now effectively has a supermajority in Parliament in support of climate action, there are currently 100 fossil fuel projects in development with government subsidies. Australia's fossil fuel industry will be fighting hard to stop the new government from halting energy projects already in the pipeline, raising fear that the nation's economy will be severely damaged. Change appears to be coming in Australia, but the new government needs to convince the nation that the climate crisis presents an opportunity, not a threat to jobs. In his victory speech, Albanese declared, Together we can end the climate wars. Together we can take advantage of the opportunity for Australia to be a renewable energy superpower. Labor promised to cut carbon emissions by 43 percent by 2030, But potential coalition partners, the Green Party and Independents, are demanding emission reductions of 60% below 2005 levels. America's hunger for beef is fueling the destruction of Brazil's Amazon rainforest. Over the last year, under right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro, destruction of the Amazon rainforest hit a 15-year high as cattle ranches exported 2 million tons of raw beef. Two years ago, the U.S. lifted a ban on Brazil's beef over food safety concerns. Now the U.S. is Brazil's second-largest buyer of beef, with imports expected to double by the end of the year. The Brazilian-based company JBS, the world's largest beef producer, has repeatedly been accused by environmentalists of buying cattle raised on illegally deforested land. The Washington Post reports that in 2017, Brazil's Environmental Law Enforcement Agency fined the company what was then more than $7.5 million, alleging that two of its Amazon meatpacking plants had purchased nearly 50,000 animals raised on clear-cut rainforest land. Cattle ranching is now the leading cause of destruction of the Brazilian Amazon rainforest. 
President Biden has been outspoken about the need to conserve the Amazon because it serves as a global carbon sink that scientists say must be preserved to avert catastrophic warming. But the U.S. agency that authorizes Brazil's meatpacking plants to export to American consumers says it doesn't try to determine whether the operations cause environmental damage. After years of false starts, the coronavirus pandemic forced the city of Oakland to take the digital divide seriously and find the funding to distribute laptop computers and expand the city's internet hotspots for low-income students and their parents. At the start of the pandemic, only 12% of low-income students had a computer at home with broadband internet access. Oakland organized a community campaign called Oakland Undivided, which provided 36,000 laptop computers to low-income students, along with establishing over 11,000 internet connection hotspots. The Christian Science Monitor reports that as a result of the campaign, 98% of Oakland students now have internet access. The Bay Area Cities Initiative is now seen as a national model for overcoming America's digital divide. Though only about 40 miles north of Silicon Valley, home to fabulously wealthy technology giants such as Google and Apple, Oakland was deeply underconnected when the pandemic shuttered its schools. And while the school district received $130 million in federal pandemic relief to fund the project, the Oakland district is now facing a budget crisis and is being forced to close down two schools. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Several times over the past year, President Biden has made statements indicating that the U.S. would use military force to defend Taiwan if the island was attacked by the People's Republic of China. At a news conference in Japan on May 23rd, Biden expressed a view that the U.S. would be willing to go further on behalf of Taiwan than he has in helping Ukraine defend itself against Russia's invasion. Recognizing that this departed from long-held U.S. policy on Taiwan, White House staff quickly tried to walk back the statement. China insists that Taiwan is part of its territory and cannot exist as a sovereign nation. Since recognizing China under the One China policy in 1979, Washington has acknowledged the Chinese position on Taiwan, but under a policy called strategic ambiguity, left unanswered the question, how the U.S. would respond if China were ever to attack Taiwan to reclaim the territory. Your reporter spoke with Chaz Freeman, who served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs from 1993 to 1994 and was the principal U.S. interpreter during former President Richard Nixon's landmark trip to China in 1972. Here he talks about his growing concern about President Biden's provocative statements regarding possible U.S. military intervention if China should launch a future attack on Taiwan. Well, um, President Biden on three or four occasions had made similar statements, each of them walked back by his staff. 
Uh, there are two problems with these statements, really. Uh, one is a practical one, uh, that uh, he is apparently committing the United States to go to war with a nuclear power over how to end the civil war in that country, China, which has never ended, uh, and over where Chinese territory begins and ends, uh, something on which, uh, which is of interest certainly to the United States, but not a major concern, although it's an existential issue for China. But second, there is a constitutional issue here and a legal issue. Uh, the President of the United States, according to the Founding Fathers, does not have the authority to send the United States to war. That is a power reserved exclusively to the U.S. Congress. And now, since the Korean War, the Congress has frequently, usually, rubber-stamped uh, presidential determinations to go to war. Uh, but the Constitution is still there, and or perhaps it isn't. The second problem is that when the United States and Beijing um, worked out a modus vivendi on the Taiwan issue, uh, the United States and China agreed on a formula, and in the U.S., uh, a law was passed called the Taiwan Relations Act, which directs the president to provide Taiwan with the weapons it needs to defend itself, but does not authorize the U.S. intervention in the in a possible war between the two parts of China, island China and Taiwan, and China on the mainland. Ambassador Freeman, I did want to ask you about China's reaction, Xi Jinping's reaction to the statements or misstatements, however you want to characterize them, by President Biden related to the United States launching a war against China if it should attack Taiwan? Well, the Chinese, um, despite the strategic ambiguity that we've adopted, namely, uh, we have tried to deter China by implying we might come to the aid of Taiwan if it were attacked. Uh, this uh, has played a role in keeping the peace. Uh, Chinese have always assumed uh, that we would aid Taiwan. But the absence of a forthright commitment to do that has had the effect of not daring them to challenge us. I'm reading commentary now in Beijing, which is very harsh against the United States. Polls show that the five years of U.S. confrontation with China that began in the Trump administration have turned a very large majority of the Chinese people uh, against the United States. Uh, the Taiwan issue remains a matter of great fervor for Chinese nationalists, and there's a lot of talk of war. Uh, the problem now is that uh, the last time we had a serious confrontation with China over Taiwan, um, the People's Liberation Army, China's military, didn't really have the capability to take Taiwan. Now they do. So in, the, in response to popular pressure, in the past, they could say, well, geez, we just can't do it. Uh, now uh, they have no such excuse. So it looks to me, since there is no apparent further path to a peaceful resolution of the differences among between the two sides of the strait, and um, since we seem to be inching toward a commitment to go to war with China, it looks to me like we're going to have a war. 
and there will be no peaceful resolution of this issue. Ambassador Freeman, just this past week on a Memorial Day, Meet the Press featured what they called a war game, which discussed in some detail the war that might be fought over Taiwan involving the United States and Chinese forces. What's the media's role here, in your view, of averting such a war? We need to have a public discussion, a debate of what is at stake. We need to educate ourselves on the history. You know, we care, I think, and we should, about Taiwan's democracy. Um, but our level of concern is nothing like that of Chinese nationalists about removing what they see as an American sphere of influence on Chinese territory and unifying their country. This was the objective of both Chinese revolutions, 1911 and 1949, um, in the last century. And uh, it is, uh, it is a, there is a balance of fervor on this issue which does not favor us. Uh, we need to restore a polite dialogue with China. Uh, this administration opened its relationship with Beijing at a meeting in Anchorage, Alaska, at which uh, Secretary Blinken and uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan uh, basically said to the Chinese, uh, you are moral reprobates. We don't like you. Uh, we don't want to do business with you. We want to oppose you. We will hold you down or push you back if we can. But, you know, there are a few things on which we need your help. Would you help us? Uh, this is not an effective approach to anybody on any subject. And uh, it is insulting. And uh, it got the predictable rebuff from the Chinese. So the first thing is we need to restore a civil dialogue with China. We need to focus not on confrontation, but on cooperation. We should emphasize cooperation in our own interest, recognizing that we will compete with China, and that on some subjects we will have to confront them. But starting off as we do with um, emphasizing confrontation and then grudgingly saying, well, we might cooperate with you on a few things, is not an effective approach. Uh, Taiwan issue needs to be put back in the box. Uh, it was in a box, uh, and it is now out of it, and as I said, it's very dangerous. That was Chaz Freeman, who served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs from 1993 to 1994. Find more analysis and commentary on U.S.-China relations and Taiwan's status by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Ten years ago, Newtown, Connecticut, suffered unimaginable violence and trauma when a deranged 20-year-old gunman used an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle to kill his mother, then went on to slaughter 21st graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School. The latest mass school shooting incident in Texas was a haunting echo of the Sandy Hook Massacre when an 18-year-old purchased an AR-15 rifle, killed his grandmother, then walked into the Robb Elementary School in the town of Uvalde, where he murdered 19 children and two teachers. Shock and anger were felt across the country, as Americans were once again confronted with the senseless mass murder of innocent children. Ten years after the Sandy Hook Massacre, Republicans in Congress 
continue to block the strengthening of any federal gun regulations that could reduce the large numbers of those killed with guns that in 2020 totaled more than 45,000, the highest reported since 1994. In the wake of the Texas school shooting, thousands of students staged walkouts at schools and college campuses across the country, demanding stricter gun laws. For the first time, firearms are now the leading cause of death in children in the U.S. Your reporter spoke with Poe Murray, co-founder and chair of Newtown Action Alliance, established in the wake of the Sandy Hook massacre. Here she reflects on the trauma people are feeling in Texas, Newtown, and all over the U.S. after this latest ghastly mass murder and the urgent need to continue demanding the strengthening of gun regulations. So I helped to co-found the uh, Newtown Action Alliance after my neighbor killed 20 children and six educators almost a decade ago here in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. And we have been working um, tirelessly to create the cultural and legislative changes that are necessary to prevent school shootings, other mass shootings, and everyday gun violence and other forms of violence all across the country. We're obviously very heartbroken in our community because of the similarity of the tragedy in Uvalde. Um, But we're also very angry um, that Congress did nothing after Sandy Hook. Uh, As you know, school shootings are preventable and mass shootings are preventable. In other nations, um, they have immediately addressed the gun violence crisis in their nation by passing strong gun control laws. But sadly, um, Congress has not taken action. Poe, we talk about inaction by Congress. But when it comes down to naming names, it really is the Republican Party that's the major obstacle to passing common sense gun restrictions. Tell us about the relationship that you've researched and learned about firsthand in these last 10 years of working with Newtown Action Alliance. What's the connection between the Republicans, the power of the National Rifle Association, the NRA, and the gun manufacturers? It really is astonishing when you think about all the carnage we've seen in this country. The fact is most Americans, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, large majority support the passage of these common sense gun laws, but Republicans are blocking it. Why? Yeah, the majority of Republicans have decided that they would rather retain their power with the help of the NRA and also National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is a gun lobby group that's headquartered three miles from Sandy Hook Elementary School. So they would rather have an NRA rating um, rather than pass common sense gun laws that are supported by majority Americans, as you mentioned. Over 90% of Americans support universal background checks. 80% of Americans support safe storage laws. And... um, And also about 70% of Americans support assault weapons bans. So there is broad public support for common sense gun laws, but a small fraction of um, Americans uh, who happen to hold congressional seats on Capitol Hill are blocking it, and they are mostly Republicans. For whatever reason, you know, Ted Cruz and other Republicans have decided that, um, you know, they would stick to their... Um, basically lies that they have created 
um, to continue to side with the gun lobby rather than to take action to save lives. On the gun issue and so many other major issues uh, confronting the country where the minority viewpoint has taken control, how important is it, in your view, that people vote in 2022 in this November's 2022 midterm election to register their opposition to what I think can only essentially be described as minority rule? Yeah, I think it's it's crucial. I think it's crucial for you know all all voters to get out and vote. Um, there are voter suppression uh, tactics, uh, but I think it's really important for young people and old people to you know get out there and vote their hearts out because if we don't show up at the polls, we have so much to lose. And it's not just gun control. It's um, with women's rights um, and voting rights. It's also saving our democracy. You know, we saw what happened on January 6th, and um, there's been an erosion in, in democracy that we have enjoyed, at least during my lifetime. I feel like my daughters and my son will have less rights um, going forward if we don't exercise our right to vote. That was Poe Murray chair of the Newtown Action Alliance. Learn more about the continuing and urgent campaign to reduce gun violence by strengthening federal gun laws by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. A group of environmental and climate activists have organized the Walk for Appalachia's Future that will travel the 303-mile route of the Mountain Valley Pipeline from May 24th to June 4th. The action seeks to amplify the voices of frontline Appalachian communities and others in their fight for environmental justice and renewable energy. Those participating in the walk, from northwestern West Virginia to southern Virginia, are calling for the cancellation of the Mountain Valley Pipeline and the project's Southgate Extension, whose construction has already devastated parts of West Virginia, Virginia, and North Carolina. If completed, the pipeline would carry frac methane gas through the region for likely export abroad. The pipeline company has already lost several permits due to environmental violations and has yet to receive others. Opponents say the pipeline project is about 55% complete, but with many gaps, especially where the pipeline crosses waterways. One of the issues holding up completion is that the candy darter, a two-inch long red, green, and pale gray fish, was recently given federal endangered species status, and it's found in only a few areas along the route of the pipeline. Along with the activists, between the lines, Melinda Tuhus is walking and driving the route of the pipeline. Here she presents a talk by Autumn Crow, program director of the West Virginia Rivers Coalition and local resident, who spoke to the group about the links between the endangered candy darter fish and the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Well, welcome to the beautiful Greenbrier Valley, everyone. 
and we're here at the um, White Sulphur Springs Fish Hatchery. Uh, this is where they raise the um, endangered candy darter. They also raise trout and then they also are raising endangered crayfish and mussels. The candy darter was um, just recently listed as an endangered species and then just recently the critical habitat for the candy darter was approved. And so the habitat for the candy darter, it was once found throughout the, um, the New River watershed. And now it's mostly found in some of the tributaries of the New River. So some of the main threats to the candy darter, um, and this is a, a, a little fish, it's only a couple inches long, and it needs really cold, clear water to survive in a, a pebbly bottomed stream. One of the major threats to the candy darter is the hybridization with the variegate darter. So the variegate darter is a um, very similar fish. It's another darter species that is commonly used as bait fish. So when the fishermen would be done fishing for the day, if they had any darters left over, they would often release those into the streams. And that fish, um, because it's so similar to the candy darter, they were able to breed together and hybridize. And so when they bred together, it made the candy darter lose its colors. Um, but other threats to the candy darter are um, sedimentation, which, um, you know, the Mountain Valley Pipeline causes significant sedimentation and erosion in the streams that it crosses. So that is uh, another major threat to the candy darter and um, one of the current lawsuits that are in place uh, around the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And so West Virginia Rivers Coalition is a party on that lawsuit um, and basically is making sure that the Fish and Wildlife Service um, in their biological opinion considers all of the impacts of the Mountain Valley Pipeline to the candy darter species. The pipeline permitting process requires any construction through endangered species habitat requires a biological opinion from the Fish and Wildlife Service. And in that biological opinion, the Fish and Wildlife Service has to determine whether the species would be impacted by construction. And if they determine that the species could be impacted, then the pipeline construction company, Mountain Valley Pipeline in this case, would have to get an incidental take permit. The Army Corps cannot issue the 404 permit without the Fish and Wildlife Service biological opinion. So until the Fish and Wildlife Service issues a new biological opinion, the Army Corps cannot issue the 404 permit. But both states have already certified their 401s, and so that is currently um, before the Fourth Circuit Court. That was Autumn Crow, Program Director of the West Virginia Rivers Coalition. Learn more about the groups opposing construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KHOI in Ames, Iowa, KRFP in Moscow, Idaho, KPOV in Bend, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Mm-hmm.